0: Hey everyone, this is Ron Ward, author of The Dirty Side of Leadership and Leadership Trainer. You're listening to the Relationships and Revenue Podcast with John Hewlin.
1: Life is all about relationships and great leaders heavily invest in those relationships. On the Relationships and Revenue podcast, we talk about how to improve our most significant relationships at home so we can be better in our business relationships. We talk with experts from all over the world, representing many disciplines about the best tips and strategies to become amazing people and amazing leaders. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Relationships and Revenue podcast. This is your host, John Hewlin, as always, thrilled to have each and every one of you with me today. And as you heard from that fantastic introduction, I have the one and only Ron Ward with me today. Ron, how are you? I'm doing great, John. Thanks for asking. You bet. You bet. Glad you're here today. Glad that you are going to be able to share some of your pearls of wisdom that you have earned over these not so few years (laughs) (laughs) in your acquisition of said wisdom. Yeah, don't date me, John. Trying not to. Trying not to. (laughs) Well, folks, if you don't know who Ron is, he did talk about being the author of the amazing book, The Dirty Side of Leadership, which for those of you watching, I am holding up in my hot little hand right now. But in addition to that, Ron's a speaker. He's the founder and CEO of Forward Operations, which is he does leadership coaching. He's the co-host of the Dirty Side of Leadership podcast, which I can't wait to talk about that some more. Just the title alone is just super fun. For somebody like me who is a, uh, I'm kind of a a leadership junkie, Ron. Just to tell you a little bit about me, real quick, as an aside. And for those of you who are into this podcast on a regular basis, you're going to know all this already, but it's actually something I study quite a bit. I study about leadership from all different sources just so I can get better at it because it is something that's important to me. And one of the most important facets of leadership to me, Ron, is the investment in people. Because I don't think I can be a great leader if I'm not willing to do that. And in order for me to get better at investing in people, I need to learn better about what makes them tick. So Absolutely. That, that's a little bit of why I get into the leadership side of things and why I think it's so important.
0: Yeah, we're on the same page with that. Uh, it's vital. And I think maybe now more than ever, uh, we need leaders <laughs> to step up.
1: Oh, for sure. Oh, well, let's see. Oh my goodness. Your, your background is just extensive. I mean, you were the, and I'm going to get some of these wrong, Ron. I know I'm trying to make sure, cause I, you can't, you can see this now. I do my homework for every guest that comes on. So I'm prepared, but uh, let's see, you were Academy Director of the Federal Probation and Pretrial Services Academy at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Charleston, South Carolina. Did I get that right? That's very true. Nice job. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you're a former USA and AAU East Coast Karate Silver Medalist. Oh, my gosh. Just so many things in your background. Just intriguing to me. It's all the other stuff. When I read that, I'm like, really?
0: Yeah, I'm still recovering from that. So <laughs> recovering martial <laughs> artist.
1: Ah, got you. It's, it's funny. I, not all that long ago, I had uh, an amazing martial artist on, Kung Lee. I had him on. He he studied for years and years and years, became a renowned world champion in like five different types of martial arts. And he turned that into an acting career because he's in California. He was in many, many films and had been involved with many people, became a director and producer. It's just interesting how that particular course and where it takes certain people,
0: you know, John. There's some major leadership lessons that uh, I'm actually going to work on writing some things about things I learned in the martial arts. But one of the mm. one of the biggest takeaways that I think would apply to any and all leaders is we were so convinced. I was in a very strict traditional Japanese martial arts called shito and we, uh, my instructor, represented the United States in the Pan Am Games. It was very intense. Wow. So. When I became a federal law enforcement instructor, the UFC had just started and Brazilian jiu-jitsu had gained some popularity. Long story short, this story is in my book, but they used to book me to spar with uh, different instructors from different agencies. And I didn't like that, but, you know, the guys that I worked with, they would kind of talk that up. So most people were very (laughs) respectful. We would spar light. So I ended up sparring with this guy. He was a lot bigger than me, but I was a lot faster. And even in my mind, I started thinking, is this the best that this agency has to offer? And about that time, he took me on the ground. And I jokingly in the book say, but it's kind of true, that he, he worked me over like a, a baby getting his diaper changed. And here <laughs> I was with a silver medal on the wall, and this guy worked me over on the ground. Mm. But- At least I was smart enough to realize there's a major hole in my martial arts game. And so Mm. this guy began to train with us. He trained with the Gracies, by the way. He was, uh, if anybody's familiar with the Gracies, Royce Gracie won the first Ultimate Fighting Championship, and he had trained literally with them. So we got some great training. And then later, I sparred another guy that was a runner-up Golden Gloves boxer. And I realized Mm. my hands were too low when I would get close. So I started training with a boxer, and I think after about a two-year period of applying all of this, as they call it, mixed martial arts, uh, we had a very strong instructor cadre because mm-hmm. you, as a leader, you have to be willing to do that self-inflection, and if if there's an opening, uh, you got to seal the cracks, and that, that's yeah. hard to accept, and sometimes it's very hard work, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm so glad that I did that.
1: Oh, goodness. Yeah, I... have t- I gotta say, Ron, I, I definitely uh, see another book with just just a few little snippets you shared with me. I could see a, a book coming out about that, and I'd buy that in a second. Oh my well, god! I'm
0: working on another
1: book, John, so we'll discuss nice. that another time. That's okay. Fun. All right. Well, we'll just we'll just cut We'll put a pin in that one. That <laughs> yeah, sounds good. All right. So take us back, Ron, because I would say that probably most people on their journeys they don't wake up one day. And just say, you know, I'm just going to write a book. Or they don't say, I'm just going to apply to become the head of a major federal agency. They just don't think about that. It's, some, it's an academy. So how, what was your journey like and how did you kind of end up where you are now?
0: Yeah, I'll keep this very brief, John. I think one of the things that adds a lot of flavor to my book is I grew up in the Appalachian coal fields. And I literally grew up, I never want to belittle, but there was no culture. There was one stop sign, a store. And so I had this dream to get out of there, but there, there was some natural charisma and I never belittle that. I do think you can help people with their leadership skills, but there, I did have some charisma and I knew that because I had followers at a very early age. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, you don't know what to do with that. And, uh, you know, the nature versus nurture thing will always be, I think, up for debate. But as I continued in life and even, you know, playing basketball and sports, I gained some popularity. But again, it was it was unharnessed. Uh, You know, I I would um, just kind of use it to my advantage. I didn't even think about the influence that I had. I just liked being popular, period, whatever that looked like. And then by the time I left, I played one year college basketball. When I left that, I really just wanted to take an elective and I got into martial arts. And John, it was really life changing for me. And I also started attending church and I I had no foundation. That's the only way I know to say it. And uh, I started building a foundation and the discipline involved in the martial arts that I'm in. um, You know, I know there's some people know disrespect. We used to call weekend warriors who go to martial arts class and they just walk out with no sweat. It was not like that. You crawled out of the dojo that I went. Yeah. To. And um, but it began to put a very much needed discipline in my life because it doesn't matter with your charisma, your communication, everything. You have to have discipline. And boy, did I learn that when I became an entrepreneur. There's no one, yeah. there's <laughs> no one there. It's just you. Yeah, but. Uh, You know, just to finalize this, I became a police officer, then a state probation, and ultimately I got on the federal probation and my martial arts paid off because at that point in time, United States probation officers had limited defensive tactics training. And I went to Hmm. an FBI defensive tactics instructor school and people could see my skills. And uh, next thing you know, I start getting called to do demonstrations, presentations, training. And that opened the door. And ultimately, when they opened our academy at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, I, I was—I went on as an instructor and, you know, was very fortunate I got promoted to academy director. So that's hmm. kind of the history. And then I just really, during that time period, was really focusing on leadership. And I started, you know, talking with other leaders, reading more, studying more, just developing my leadership skills. And uh, then I kind of got you know, there were some people to call and ask for advice, other leaders. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, and I'm sure you read that, John, but I was elected chair of the federal law enforcement training accreditation board. So that's FBI, that's everybody at the table. And wow. that, man, was that a learning experience. Uh, yeah. I knew that, you know, you you really had to be focused and communicate effectively on all these things. So all of this and my coaching other managers led to me writing the book. Uh, based on some things that I had developed.
1: Gotcha. You know, I'd be curious to know, in your your pursuit of becoming a great leader, uh, your study of other leaders, who are some of the other leaders that you studied? You know,
0: John, that is, that's an interesting question because I'm a history, amateur history buff. So mm. I've been to the soldier's home. I've read tons of materials about Abraham Lincoln you know, I think you have to understand the time, the situation to really, really appreciate his leadership. And, uh, also a lot of people don't know this. He was not a happy man. He, he mm. suffered a lot in his life. And, um, you know, I think we see these marketing ads and we see these people that are so dynamic, but you know, there's, there's a burden to being a leader and no one ever talks about it, but Abraham <laughs> Lincoln, huge inspiration. And, you know, that moves all the way up to, like, Gary Vanderchuk. You know, I got introduced to people like Gary v. Uh, I, I was dating a girl, and she was into marketing. So I started studying a lot of marketers. Uh, mm-hmm. So I go everything. And then John Maxwell and a lot of Christian leaders, I've, I've read materials. So I, I do think that I've got a pretty diverse uh, background in, in at least studying other leaders.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, Ron, one of the things that I find helpful, it, it's, it's a lesson that took me, let's just say way too many years to learn, but I finally learned it. And that's this, I can learn something from every single person I meet, every person. That's right. Now, the part that took me the longest to learn was, what if it's somebody that I don't respect, or I don't think they do something worth following? What I learn from them typically is what not to do. Not to say, still extremely valuable, yeah, so, so valuable, you know I'd, i I kind of pick on him sometimes. you happen to mention Gary Vee, and I have friends that think let's just say they think a lot of him. we'll put it that way now, there's no denying what he's done. I mean, amazing- work that this guy has done uh, his books, I love reading his books. I just cannot listen to him talk. I can't do it. And it really has nothing to do, because some people push back with me because I'm a Jesus follower. I don't apologize for that. I am. And it actually has nothing to do with his coarseness in his speech. It really doesn't. It has to do with the fact that I'm a professional speaker, and I have been for 30 plus years, and I don't respect his speaking ability. It's just, he doesn't work at it at all. And you can tell, yeah. So that's that's what that is for me. So content-wise, love what he has to say. Just don't like how he says it. If that makes sense,
0: yeah. And John, we won't take time, but I, I teach a, a little segment on mentorship, and I went back, which is an interesting study. If you get a chance on the origins, it's out of mm. Greek mythology of the word mentor. And mm. uh, I tell that story. I spoke at a university not that long ago, and I told the story of a mentor and. The interesting part is mentor is an actual name, and mentor was a poor mentor. Uh, that's what mm-hmm. makes the story even more interesting. Uh, but the, what I tell people is you have to understand there's short-term mentors and long-term mentors. There, there might be that individual that's with you for a lifetime, but mm-hmm. someone else might just teach you something that you need for that season of your life. And then also, I think you need different generations as a leader. And here's the thing about Gary Vee. I'm not defending Gary Vee. He, he's got some cutting edge things, but I feel the same way as you. I've never read a Gary V. book, by the way. It, mm. It's basically all social media and podcasts. And I, I don't listen to him much anymore. But when I was first stepping into the, the world from government into entrepreneurship, uh, mm-hmm. he hit some points that, that helped me immensely. But uh, Gary Vee is tar- he targets Gen Z and it's very yeah, evident yeah. that he knows his argument. There's a, there's a whole, he's got these loyal people that if you don't say the F word, I'm not sure that they're going to respect you, which is kind of crazy. It's a switch in culture for me, but it's just a truth.
1: <laughs> it's so, true. Yeah. Uh,
0: I think as far as if, if you're looking at someone on the major stage like that, it's knowing your audience and uh, mm-hmm. absolutely knows this audience. And, uh man, I've talked to people. you know you would think that Gary Vee walks on water <laughs> I was yeah. I was not that big a fan, but I certainly learned some things and pulled some things. Uh, Simon Sinek is someone that I respect and admire, and there's just so many like I could just go on and on naming leaders i, I read constantly I have something going mm-hmm. on or I put on a podcast when I'm in the shower'm uh, mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm on the phone with a major podcast, a national. Really high up podcast tomorrow. And wow. uh, I was excited about it because I've been a fan uh, of this one. So, uh, anyway, of course, I'm a fan of yours now, John. So appreciate that. Terrifying. Thank you. But yeah, I think it's important to understand that, you know, you need different age groups. You need, di- and there's mentors. And the point I was going to make is, John, you, there's a chapter in my book called Working for an Idiot. My publisher wanted me to take that out. They felt it was too coarse, too strong, but I wanted to leave that exact wording in. Because I know that's how people feel sometimes in life. Everybody's worked for that idiot. And I've gotten more response on that chapter. Like people are (laughs) like, oh man, I could feel you. I I feel like I worked for that person. So, but as you said, I learned some valuable lessons lessons from that person. So Mm -hmm. you got to take the wheat with the tear, as it says in the Bible. You got to differentiate. And is this long term? Is this short term? Is this something I need? Is this something I need to discard? And all of that it builds your leadership, you know, in your in your toolbox and and kind of formulates who you are. If you can decipher that. The problem yeah. is, if you idolize someone, you want to be just like them. And that's mm-hmm. where the problems come in.
1: Oh, my gosh. That is so true. You know, and that's there are some times when I have not been hired either for a job or for a speaking engagement or something like that, because one of the major questions that people ask is what kind of leader are you and what they the answer they want back is they want me to say who i'm like that's well known yeah but i'm not like anybody else i'm me and i and i know how i do things and i describe how i do things but that's not the answer that people want they want me to be a clone of somebody else so they can easily identify me and put me in this little box and then set me to the side and pull me out when they need me. And uh, I tend to throw a monkey wrench in that quite often. Well, and one of the changes I've
0: seen, I'm sure you have, and we won't, we don't need to get into specifics, but I think there's certain, you know, they call it political correctness or whatever, that, that they want you to be in a certain box. And I've had, you know, the various questions, I apologize, I've had the various questions asked to me, uh, would you stand on this or that? I said, hey, I promote leadership. It doesn't matter to me the background. If you can influence people in a positive way, make people's lives better, help them not suffer because I suffered a lot as a leader. But Hmm. you're exactly right. They like, what school are you from? And um, it's not that I'm arrogant, it's just that I've attended so many schools short term that uh, I represent (laughs) a lot. And I'm sure that's what you're you're kind of uh, conveying.
1: Well, trying to anyway. And, you know, the thing that can be difficult, even as an entrepreneur, those things come up. That maybe you don't get those questions directly from people, but in very indirect ways or kind of the direction that conversations go, it becomes very clear very quickly that, you know, if you don't fit in with this little subset or this little group over here, yeah. Eh, you're not really going to be a fit with us. And I'm like, okay, why is this one small little thing? What does that have to do with this larger thing that we're talking about here? It, I, I don't get how one has anything to do with the other, but unfortunately I can't, I have a difficult time figuring out why some of those things are important because I know for me, they're not. It's like, okay, it's, That has nothing to do with this thing. So I don't understand why that is a determining factor.
0: Yeah. You know, John, I think the two, if I had to name two big missing ingredients in leadership, coaching Mm. and training is, is practical application. In other words, I've gone to some great trainings. I've learned some tremendous catchphrases. I love them. Have a notebook full, but I get back on Monday morning and go, how does this apply, you know, to... Susie, who has B.O., you know, sitting a, right. across the table for me. And that's a true story, by the way, not the name. But you deal with stuff and you're like, wait a minute, that wasn't in the, the that week long training that I went into. I mean, you mm-hmm. might get something on how to have difficult conversations, but that doesn't help you get over the nervousness of that or the right. nature of how uncomfortable it is without some practical application and practice. And that's one of the things that I do in uh, some of my training programs. And the other part, you hear so much the word empathy, mm-hmm. and I think it's almost become just another word, but mm-hmm. there's a difference of getting to know someone and and being able to empathize with the situation. And no matter what people say, uh, people want to know you care about them. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, out of, a, I think it was a survey of a thousand employees, what one word they wanted from their, their manager, and it was uh, trust. And, mm. you know, there are so many things that managers do every day. I, after my book came out, I get a lot of emails and phone calls. And now after our podcast got quite popular, I'm getting it started back up of people asking questions given. But one of mm. the, you know, the the problems I see is managers break trust all the time. And they don't understand that it takes a long time to build up and <laughs> short time to break down. I For tell sure. I was coaching someone, I said, I think you need to rebrand and it's going to take you at least a year. And wow. it, wasn't, it wasn't music to their ears, but it was not true. And uh, so, anyway, I think those are just some missing ingredients. Um, and then, no matter how effective you are, and this is why I, I believe wholeheartedly in coaching, but I also believe in that mentorship we talked about. Can you imagine onboarding if we added soft skills? I have companies come to me, they're like, we don't understand. They do this. They've learned this policy, this procedure, uh, and they go on and on. And I said, but did you teach them to communicate with cu- communicate with customers? Did you teach them? And one was a hospital environment. Did you teach them to communicate with one another and their manager? And did you find out what's the best mode of communication that this particular manager wants and this doesn't? Right. Anyway, they could answer none of those questions because they completely mm. ignore they're checking off a box when you come right. on board. So mm-hmm. we need to I jumped off a little bit but i think we oh. need to look at onboarding in a little deeper sense
1: well let's continue with that theme I, I like that i like the direction we're going with that so so tell me more what is it that most places and i don't care if it's a you know fortune 500 company or a mom and pop shop that has three employees yeah. i don't care what is it that we're missing right now from your vantage point ron yeah i'm actually
0: glad you asked that i try to focus a lot on communication because no one, name me a time when you were in school and the teacher said, get out your book on communication. We're going to learn how to uh, communicate. <laughs> now, you got some tips. You know, your mother might, when I was a kid, you might get slapped if you said the wrong thing. But mm-hmm. uh, no one set you down and, and said, this is how you convey a message to get it from point A to point B in an effective way. So I I think communication has to be woven in the fabric of onboarding. Uh, mm. And that comes through observing and giving feedback. There also has to be some psychological safety. And I know that's, a, that's kind of a, a catchphrase, but it's so true. If people are not comfortable providing feedback, you're not going to change. You're not going to grow. You right. have to set the example of a culture of feedback. And as you do that and you listen, uh, in my book, I, I talk about eight magic words. And that is, are you mm. getting what you need from me? Now, you mm-hmm. can have a different version of that, but but John, if you and I work together and, you know, you work for me and I said, are you getting what you need from me? And you start to say something or you bring something up and I get all defensive and I hold it against you. You know, that's not communication that does not create an atmosphere for growth. So I think you have to challenge the process throughout you have to get feedback from the individual. There were several times that we changed our own boarding because we would meet with mm. new federal officers and say, how did this go? You know, uh, what could we change? How could we get better? And the last thing, John, and we'll, you know, we'll move on or see what else you uh, want to ask. But I think also, I'm so glad that I have a background in instructional design because mm. When I learned that there's visual, auditory, and kinesthetic learners, it made a huge difference in the way I train individuals, the way I coach individuals, and you can't put everyone in a box, and that's the other thing I see with onboarding. Mm -hmm. It's like, it doesn't matter who you are, what's your background, how you learn. These are the things, this is the criteria that you have to meet, and then you're ready to do your job.
1: Mm -hmm. So with that instructional design background, what is it that you're doing with the knowledge that people learn differently. So for for instance give, give me an example then of a something important that you need to convey to those three different types of learners. How would you do it differently for each of them?
0: Yeah, and if this is in a presentation environment, I certainly have things that they're going to see visually. Sure. You know, I'm going to tell a lot of stories. I do that in my training because a story if it's done right can combine all three elements and that's not talked about much but your visual auditory and kinesthetic learners can embrace a, a good story if you paint the picture but john this is the the whole i guess the most popular program that i have and the foundation that i built upon is my eight hour scenario based leadership training mm-hmm. and i build the blocks of communication i lay a framework, And then in the last part of the day, we actually do scenarios Mm. and people uh, really take these seriously. I mean, I've had people kind of fall apart a little bit, but we we never want psychological scars when you leave training. So we rebuild them and have them go through it again. But one person is a manager. The other person is an employee and there's some issues and they use the framework they've learned that morning and they use some words that are effective and uh that are proven effective and then they go through that process and then you debrief just like you do in law enforcement you know fire people uh, rescue you know military they know that it takes scenarios to build the skill set that you need they understand that but yet we walk in and we're still doing a lecture with a powerpoint with no interactive so anyway you go through the debrief what went well what would you do differently and um then we switch role. I, I'm sorry. Then I would give you feedback. If you were the manager, I would ask you, John, what do you think you did well in that scenario? What would you do differently? Then I give you feedback as your employee. And um, people don't like to give feedback. So I have to say, give them a little nugget, help, them, give them something they can improve. And that seems to make them relax a little bit to give genuine feedback. Then we're going to switch roles. And we're going to mm-hmm. repeat it. Then we switch partners and scenario. Uh. So. Because I've learned this in training, John, if you and I are buddies, guess who I'm going to pair up with? And yeah. Uh, yeah. guess who I'm going to goof off with? No one talks about that either,
1: but you <laughs> have to have
0: active, <laughs> willing participants and you have to show leadership in that group environment. There may be times you have to change partners and do things. I learned all this teaching defensive tactics uh, uh-huh. around the country. Uh, the two the two pals would uh, pair up and, you know, it'd be a little bit of chaos. So I... I <laughs> out of everything I've done, the the best feedback I've ever gotten is that eight-hour scenario-based leadership training.
1: Mm. And that's something you continue to do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I did it
0: a few weeks ago in Austin, Texas. Nice. Yeah. And I continue to get a feedback from that. Uh, I, as a matter of fact, I trained a group of hospital administrators. Interesting quick story, John. We went through this whole process. And uh, and look, i I'll, for our audience I'll tell you two words that I use frequently, and it's noticed and wondering okay. and these words are not as assertive, they're not so disarming or condescending, so, for example, John, I noticed you were late for work last week twice, and I was wondering what we can do to make sure that doesn't happen again so right. I've done a lot in that sentence i I let you know that I know, but i'm wondering i'm not saying you know, you better get here on time or you better never do this again. I'm, I'm wondering, like, I'm letting you know, this is a little out of context for you and I want to help you, but I need, I need, I need you on my team to figure that out. And then I use the words we, because I want you to not be just a team member. I want you to be a teammate. I want you to feel a part of this and we come up with a solution. So there's a lot of, um, in that one sentence, that it's, it's pretty powerful when it's applied. Mm. And I see people start to apply that. So anyway, back to the hospital administrator. I didn't know this, but there was a female in the class. She had to take a pretty serious personnel action the next week. Oh, and wow. I was around her enough to know she's a very kind-hearted person. And mm. I'm going to be honest with you, John, the, the people who are very kind by nature really struggle with giving corrective feedback. Uh, that's sure. their Achilles heel. It's just a reality. They're a good person. They don't want to hurt anyone or they feel guilty, uh, whatever it is. So she took this training and she continued to improve. And I got an email from her. It's probably one of the best emails I've ever gotten. She had a personnel accent. She said, if this had been before that training, I, would have, I wouldn't have slept. I don't know how it would have gone. I would have probably thrown up before the meeting. Wow. Uh she was very she was very uh truthful. And she said that after this training, she said, I walked in, I, I used the principles you taught, it it worked well. I was collected, I didn't deal with guilt or groveling, which is something else we could talk about, that our human nature is we become apologetic. When mm-hmm. let's say you and I have worked together a long time and at the end I'll be going, John, come on, you know, I don't I don't wanna do this. You know I don't want to do don't put me in the spot that's grobling and we do that hmm. by nature and I tell people you end the meeting on a professional manner and schedule the follow up now one other quick tip if people are interested in this is always tell someone do an informal follow up within 48 hours if possible because negativity spreads negativity yeah. is like a cancer so if I have provided that corrective feedback to you, John. It's human nature. Your mind's like, Ron doesn't like me. He wants to get rid of me. Like, it's just going to build. Yeah. And if I can just do an informal stop by your office, even if it's a quick phone call, not preferred, but I'm saying in this new, you know, work environment, sometimes it's all you've got or Zoom right. is to just say, hey, John, how are you doing? And mm-hmm. uh just wanted to say, hey, now instinctively, they're going to want to pull you back in that meeting and say, you know, I was right. thinking about that meeting. Don't let that happen in that 48 hours. No, man, I just wanted to check on you, see how you're doing, and uh, we will stick. You know, we're going to follow up. I want to hear everything you got to say, and we'll stick with our meeting in two weeks. That is another thing that I've gotten so much response from of leaders who've had to take action that it helps so much to do that informal follow-up. Mm. But to conclude this, it was just so nice for me to hear because this was early on when I developed this scenario based training to get that kind of feedback from a hospital administrator uh, that her meeting was a success and she didn't suffer through it. And that's one of the things that I'm determined to do, John, is I don't want leaders to suffer like I did early on.
1: Well, that's a big win for you as a, you know, as a relatively, I mean, based upon what you just said, a relatively young entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, no kidding
1: you know and, and that's new,
0: and that's something
1: new. that a lot of entrepreneurs suffer with is they don't they don't get wins early on and it can you can feel like you're alone being an entrepreneur and in some ways you still are no matter what yeah. but you know it that's one of the things when i do coaching with young entrepreneurs or when i coach people who think they want to become entrepreneurs but haven't done it yet one of the things i talk to them about is you know Get an easy win. It's like, what do you mean easy? I mean, what's something that's going to get you a win today, right now? What's something you can do right away that's going to get you a win, and that you know doesn't most people it doesn't take them very long. They can come up with something. It's like, like do that thing right now. Yeah. Um, one of the examples I give, Ron, a lot of times is with entrepreneurs. One of the things I encourage most entrepreneurs to do is to get real, real comfortable with this thing right here, and recording themselves. It's like, I don't care if you like it or not. That is how it is now. People need to see you and hear you all the time. That's part of your brand because you are your brand. So I need to see you and I need to hear you. And so typically, if I'm in a meeting with the person, it's like, okay, if you don't want to do it in front of me, I get it. It's like, but before the day is done, I want you to record your very first video that you're going to put on social media today. And you're not going to take five takes to do it. One take, that's it. And I don't care if it's terrible, if you blow it big time, if it's the worst thing you think you've ever seen, I don't care because it's our baseline. Because everything we do after that, we're comparing back to that. So a month from now, when you're doing one and you go back and look at that one, look at the progress you made. Yeah, That's a win. It's an easy win to do. Even if you're scared to death to do it, it's still an easy win.
0: Yeah, it is. And And John, you know, growing up, Uh, We didn't have social media. So I I tell everyone, you've got free advertisement. Why are you not? Oh, my gosh, yes. I'm expanding my company, Forward Operation. By the way, the Forward is a play on my last name, uh, last name is word Forward. I use the number four because when I looked up F-O-R-W-A-R-D, there was like a million. So uh, I thought, uh, I'm going to leave that alone. But I'm expanding the company. And one of the things, because uh, the former chief of police for the United States Supreme Court has just come on with our company wow uh, but as you can imagine when you're with government you want to stay hidden you don't want to put yourself out there
1: that's a good point
0: that's something that you know as i bring in state and federal people uh these you know the influencers of course they're they're accustomed to that but a quick story that maybe this will help an entrepreneur and it, it aligns perfectly with what you're saying John, I, I was uncomfortable with that at first, because when you are a federal uh-huh. law enforcement, you make enemies no matter how much you respect people. It's just the nature of the job. So I didn't want to put that out there. But I had someone talk to me and said, you either need to decide you're, if you're writing a book, you know, you, you need to build your so- social media base, which was brilliant. And I finally listened and got more comfortable. But here's the point. I had a, a pretty large Facebook following. I delved in the world of Instagram, and I started looking at my likes. And I'm just being vulnerable here. And sometimes I I might have two or three, four. And uh, I almost felt like I need to beg people to like my stuff. (laughs) So someone told me, and a lot of people don't understand algorithms, but you and I could post this podcast this morning and then post it this afternoon and have a complete different audience. Uh, Unless Mm -hmm. someone follows you closely, monitors you, looks at your stories, uh, they may not see it. So. You asked me about naysayers. I had more naysayers on social media than my book. This is guys that I work Mm. with. They're like, oh, my God, why are you doing so many? You're on Instagram all the time or you're on Facebook all the time. And they don't understand that they may have seen me, but I have probably got four thousand friends that didn't. So uh, I was getting discouraged. I'm going to be honest on this. You know, pandemic's going on. I did a few virtual trainings. My book did well, but it there was no way I could go anywhere to train and I didn't have people ringing my phone off the hook to, for coaching. Right. So it, it got a little discouraging. And frankly, I had some pretty major job offers early on. And mm. um, so I started thinking I need to jump ship and go back to that safety net called yeah. know, the the government. And um, so I had done some posts consistently, as I was told to do, and I got a phone call. Now, this is after the pandemic had lifted I Mm -hmm. got a phone call from someone, major state organization, not even affiliated with what I did, another state. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was basically just a messenger that says, do you speak in events? Now, think about this, John. I'd posted different pictures of me speaking, uh, even Mm -hmm. if they were older, but you can't assume people really retain that or understand that. So I sent back, yes, you know, can we set up a phone call? So we're talking and this person said, you know, we had brought in various keynote speakers or they had resumes and, you know, packets laid out sure. and they said, we weren't pleased. She said, I'm literally walking to my car and you did a 60 second video. And I was like, man, that was so good. Gets in the car and keeps driving and goes, oh, my God, I've been following this guy on Facebook and I love him and I haven't even thought to reach out to him. So that's <laughs> how this started. Can you imagine how that boosted, you know, my frustration with social media? And, and I was their keynote speaker for their statewide conference. Nice. Uh, and, it, and it came through social media posts. So you just never know. You're one contact away uh, from stepping into the next level. Mm-hmm. You know, I tell everyone your network really is your net worth and, and vice versa. Uh, sure. You've got to build that network. And one other quick story, John, you'll relate to this, but I had someone that I taught defensive tactics for in Pennsylvania so many years ago, I'm afraid to mention. I think it was horse and buggy days or something. (laughs) And um, so this person goes on, gets uh, their PhD, becomes a professor post retirement. Mm. And they, the first big assembly that this university did post lockdowns, Mm. I was the keynote speaker. it was based on a relationship from 20 years earlier. Hmm. And because when this person would come to the academy, I would make a point. Some people, I guess, think you change when you get promoted or something. But I I tried Hmm. to, you know, if if I like somebody, I like somebody. I try to be friendly and nice to people. And that pays off as well. But I wasn't looking for a payout. I was just nice to this person. They were always nice, respectful. We had great conversations, you know, maybe... Once every two years they would be at the academy for one of our programs, mm. and then the next thing you know, I'm speaking at this university, and it was mm. man, we had a time john i i I've got a presentation goes twelve things I would tell my twenty one year old self mm. and, um it's got some humor in it. we had a great time, but um
1: yeah, a lot of fun, but that, that your network is your net worth for sure oh, I could not agree more with that, you know and one of the cool things, I don't know if you've noticed this with your experience uh, doing your podcast, but I can tell you from doing this one, I made the decision, been almost two years ago because the podcast has been going on, this one, uh, three and a half years about. Wow. Because I started it in, in May of 2020 is when it started. Now, the idea for it was three years before. So it took me three years to even do anything with I, it. I feel you on that. <laughs> I wrote that book for three years. I, my <clears throat> podcast took a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my uh, my book, which the the audience here knows about that I've been writing for seven years, that's a very long and involved story that I can tell you off air. But um, the bottom line is, about two years ago, I made the decision that I was going to start having people on the show w- when I wasn't doing a solo episode, that I was going to have guests on the show of people I admire, that I want to learn from. Because the way I looked at it is, If I felt like I could learn something from that person, it would naturally come through either by viewing or by listening that the audience would as well, that they would come along on the journey with me. And it was it's slightly different than how I did it. Initially, I had people on that I knew, all great people. But if I hadn't made that decision, Ron, I don't think you'd be here today. Honestly. I don't I understand. I there's I have met so many people in the last two years that not only have come on the show, but some have become amazing friends of mine. Uh, yeah. I drop his name on occasion, and he's totally fine that I do. Tony Mandarich. Tony was the number two overall draft pick in the NFL in 1989. He and I have become friends. Yeah, uh, that's,
0: that's awesome.
1: I promise you, that's not somebody that I thought I'd ever be friends with, because I remember that Sports Illustrated cover of him on there, that, that massive, I mean, he's a humongous man still to this day, 27 years sober. From his uh, years of taking painkillers, 27 years sober.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. You know, John, there's also a marketing aspect in that because, you know, as I go on podcasts, people are more prone to purchase my book. They're more prone to listen to your podcast. And but the, the part that I've been so amazed and this is a compliment to you and other entrepreneurs is man, people have been so generous and they've reached out and supported mm-hmm. me. And even there's a couple of people that are kind of in my purview. You know, you could say we're competitors, I guess, mm. put it that way. And there's not, they could care less. They promote mm-hmm. my stuff. I promote their stuff. And yeah. I have really enjoyed that environment. I think leadership is this It doesn't matter your culture, your whatever it is. There's a bond of people who desire, uh, strive to be good leaders and want to help other people, and it's a close-knit group. I Mm -hmm. hardly ever have met. Now, I'm not talking about these, you know, false leaders and people who are narcissists and all that. I'm talking about legitimate leaders. I've hardly ever met one I didn't like. That if Mm. they were trying to influence people for the better. As a matter of fact, I can't think of anyone I didn't like, and uh, I really appreciate that area of maturity and how people are willing to to help one another. It's pretty awesome.
1: Thanks for listening to part one of my conversation with Ron Ward on the Relationships and Revenue podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it. It was a fantastic conversation, but we're only part of the way through it. So don't forget, part two is coming up very soon. So be on the lookout for that. Thanks so much and have a great day. Bye.